finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Well, this is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Uh, Andrea is my mom. I don't think we've mentioned that in a few episodes. I don't know if that's uh, a selling point, but it does provide some context. She's also a librarian, but... Kind of not currently, because we're in the midst of a pandemic and nobody's anything. I'm working from home, so I'm a stay-at-home librarian. But can you be a librarian if you're not in the library? I don't know. It's hard. It's weird to be a librarian and not touch any books for weeks. Mm-hmm. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah. This is, I think, our this is the first episode we've recorded. We, we record in advance, so you'll have heard episodes during the midst of the, the pandemic. But this is the first one we've really recorded. In this state. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah. Which is nice that we can start a new series and talk about something different and sort of get our minds out of that sort of mindset of where we are in the pandemic. Yeah. So we're starting a new comic book series, which is very exciting. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what we're doing? Sure. We are doing The Wicked and the Divine. Uh Written by Karen Gillan, drawn by Jamie McKelvey, colors by Matt Wilson. Uh, I don't remember who does the letters. I think it's maybe Clayton Cowles. Yeah, it's Clayton Cowles. Uh, in this volume, at least, Hannah Donovan is credited as designer. I don't know what that means, but that's an interesting credit to see in a comic book, I think. We'll have to look more into that. I, w- I thought it meant, like, the character design? No, McKelvey definitely did the character design. That's the thing with McKelvey, is he is a celebrated character designer. The costume that Captain Marvel wears in the Captain Marvel movie is famously based on a design that he came up with. Okay. Or it's like him, it might have been a collaboration between him and someone else, I don't, I don't remember. But I know that he had a big hand in that Captain Marvel design that... Basically, is a hundred percent responsible for that character getting her own movie. Interesting. So this series came out in twenty fourteen, so it's pretty recent, and it's from Image Comics. And I guess the first assembled um, graphic novel. I got. Well, can I? I got. I want to correct myself because people are going to be mad. No one's going to be mad. I'm worried people are going to be mad. The design is not 100% responsible for that character getting her own movie. People like the character beforehand. Kelly Sue DeConnick's work writing the character in the wake of the redesign was very popular. There are other reasons why that character's profile raised enough to get her her own movie. But I'm just saying that costume design is legitimately great and did a lot of heavy lifting. That's fair enough. Okay, just so I, I don't want people to be, I don't want to feel, I don't want people to think I'm erasing other people's work to praise Jamie McKelvey. <laughs> so, series came out 2014, Image Comics, the first volume won the British Comic Award Best New Comic. Um, it's basically a fantasy or maybe like even an urban fantasy series. I think urban fantasy is a fairly accurate, if not slightly misleading descriptor. I think we talked a lot about what urban fantasy is. And I think that 
consensus that we came to and other people came to is that urban fantasy has elements of fantasy writing, but it takes place in contemporary times. Yeah, I think the problem I get, like, the reason I... I always have, like, a weird reaction to the descriptor of urban fantasy because there's just so much, like, negative stereotypes around it as a genre. Like, I, I hear the term urban fantasy, and all I can think about are, like, book covers... That are just like a picture of a lady's waist from behind and she has a lower back tattoo. I kind of disagree because I think one of the iconic urban fantasy series that are out there right now is the Dresden Files. And that is not vampire romance fiction. Okay. Which we're not going to talk about because we did talk about that quite a lot in our previous episode. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that that is what urban fantasy is. I'm just saying... When I hear that, that's what I think of. I think of, like, a person in a leather jacket, like, and they're like, I'm a werewolf detective. My name's Tanya Sexperson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well. And this isn't Tanya Sexperson, werewolf detective. No, this is a lot more sophisticated than that. So I mean, there's I- plenty of sex people in this. Don't get me wrong. They're just not werewolf detectives. I'm sure you have everybody at the, on the edge of their seat like, what is the series about? Why don't you tell them a little bit about the series before you go on a, a rant about... Okay, so this, I mean, this is a this is a series that fits into the kind of the mold of, of like an American gods or something like that. It's about gods in the present day. It's using them as, mostly as a metaphor to deal with ideas of like celebrity with you know, making art in public. And it is, the premise is that every... 90 years. 90 years, that's what it was. Uh, There's this thing called the reoccurrence where a bunch of gods, I think it's... 12. 12, get reborn into the modern day. They're essentially like living people are chosen to be incarnations of... A, it's a different set with some overlap of gods each time. And so in 2014, when the series starts and is set, uh, Earth is in the midst of a new reoccurrence. And so there's a bunch of hot new gods in the scene. And they're very much like celebrities. And like one of the, the big, like I think, central thing going on here is the idea of like concerts are like churches so like what if they were literally like that instead of showing up to see a band perform you showed up to witness the divine well i think it has a lot to do i mean it does it treats these gods that are reincarnated as like hot pop icons yeah. they're like pop stars they're like celebrity influencers they're like party people you know it's kind of like the celebrity as like a star, you know, mm-hmm. like sort of like they're they're stars because they're stars. They they yeah. really and then I guess like this whole culture that blooms around it. There's these people who are um, fans and who are obsessed, like with people who are obsessed mm-hmm. with celebrity. These are their sort of followers that kind of leap, like latch on to the like celebrity, but they're only reincarnated for two years. Yeah, and then they die. And then they die. So, so it's kind it's a of live like, fast, die young, twenty-seven club. Like it's dealing with all sorts of these, the mythology of celebrity. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what 
this is about. But it blends sort of pop culture and religion and mythology and this sort of cult of celebrity, which is a huge thing, you know, with the social media influencers and things like that. And I think it sort of taps into sort of both the side of being that kind of person and the people that are drawn to that type of culture. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it is set in 2014, which is almost the last year this story could possibly be set in. Because that was like almost the last year it was possible for celebrities to be cool. Cool is dead now because of social media. Because you get to see what your favorite musician ate for lunch. And they are imbued with an uncomfortable amount of humanity. But I think also now we're dealing sort of with the backlash of that, like, rabid, like, you know, that rabid obsession. You know, we're seeing, like, people that five years ago were people were obsessed with in this sort of reality TV culture where we were obsessed with, like, debutantes and socialites. Those people... I guess that oversaturation has shown people the flip side. So now we see like their insipid behavior. We see their pandering and we're much more, especially millennials, they're much more um, tuned to the authentic. So I think some of these celebrities and influencers that are kind of like a persona that they put on and it's like a false kind of perception, those kinds of celebrities are being outed as being sort of you know, insipid or what's another word for that? Like, um, I don't know. I guess like, I guess my, I'm not totally right. Cause there are still some, I guess there's like, you, you've got various rappers and like Billie Eilish and whatever that still evoke some sense of ineffable cool. But it like for all of those people, the expiration date on their coolness is so much shorter than it used to be. Like it's not two years, which is the idea here. It's like six months. Well, I think I think mostly, I think this deals with the type of celebrity that produces something. So, I mean, most of them are, and we'll get into that when we start talking about the actual characters, they're artists, street artists, they're performers, Mm -hmm. they're things that are sort of, they're not celebrities for the sake of like their infamy. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. I just think it's really interesting to look at the, the way, the power that celebrity has in this. And compare it to, like, people's reaction to Gal Gadot's Celebrity Imagine cover. Well, I think Which, like, everyone was like, this is horrible and dorky and you suck. But I think she would be the kind of person three years ago that they would have thought that was heartwarming and and inspiring. But I think, like, that sort of uh, caring for vanity's sake, that sort of transparent kind of, like, um, persona where they're... You know, they're kind of like, they're phonies, but they're, it's like having your Facebook life or having your Instagram life. You know, like there's people that you see on those kinds of social media things where they have like this, like what they portray is just the best part of their life. That they're not really authentic. So maybe we will see a cycle back to what they're, the, this kind of celebrity that the Wicked and Divine is preoccupied with, which is this sort one imbued with this sort of untouchable unapproachable coolness i think i mean this is very modern and very relevant of modern times but it really makes me think about like that sort of 
art and music scene of the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the, like, look of, like, one of the characters when we talk about Lucifer, she really has this sort of, like, 80s Duran Duran-inspired art well, look. Well, also, the obvious influence there is, like, late 70s Bowie, like, Thin White Duke. Definitely. Station to Station. I only eat cocaine and chili peppers, David Bowie. Well, it's true, because at one point she asked if they have any cocaine. Yeah. But I think, I guess that's kind of like, each god's persona is one sort of highlighting this type of celebrity culture, Mm -hmm. and then also is sort of like mocking that one at the same time. Yeah, and they're all kind of a mishmash of different sort of celebrities. So like... Lucifer has, like, a bunch of David Bowie, but also, like, Prince and a lot of those, like, Brit- like early 2000s, late 90s, like, British rock stars that were, like, all in the tabloids for being, like, dickheads. Like, that's sort of all mixed up in Lucifer. And then, like, Ball is kind of, like, he's a little bit like um, Kanye West, but there's, like, lots of other influences, too. Oh, yeah, he definitely has this sort of, like street scene aesthetic that he's going yeah. for. And then one of the one that's kind of like the like what's that? I think of that the term for that like it's not hobo. Boho. Yeah. Then there's the pop star who has that sort of boho I, aesthetic. I'm a yes, and that's She's maybe the most dated cuz it's like oh yeah, that's what like the upper tier of, like, indie pop was at that time was, like, oh, like, Florence and the Machine and shit like that. And that wave has kind of turned into something completely different at this yeah. point. Yeah, and then I think there's, like, when you, like, get further on in the series and you meet Woden and he's kind of like this sort of, um, you know, that, like, DJ, like, that, you, yeah. you know, with the, like, sort like of a- Tron suit and the metallic face mask and he has these sort of, like... Um, very 80s-inspired, future-looking, like, Valkyries that are kind of, like, also in, like, leather pantsuits. And so they're, you know, that's that kind of, like, house music aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's pretty interesting. So do you want to get into what actually happens in this? Yeah. So... Our protagonist is, like, which makes sense for a story about celebrity like this. Our protagonist is a super fan. Yeah, her name is Laura. Yeah, so, like, the opening... Well, we open with, like, a flashback that shows, like, the... I guess it's the end of the previous reoccurrence, which is basically all of these uh, incarnations of these gods gather in this building, and then it gets blown up. Right, and it's set, like, in the 1920s, and then you see... Which is also a recurring um, motif... They're sitting at a a circular table, and then there's people sitting there, and then if they're deceased, there's a skull in front of their seat. And then as you read the comic, each time there's sort of an interlude, there's a black page. It's it's a circular motif, and inside each of the circles, there's like a little icon for representing each of the gods that have been reincarnated. Well, yeah, and it gets filled in as more of them are revealed to us throughout the series. And then it, there's also this recurring motif that I don't know what it is yet of counting to four. Right. And also I think it's interesting to 
be mindful when you're moving through this area is the whole concept of like clicking your fingers. The gods click their fingers to do stuff. Right. They count to one, two, three, four, and that does something to invoke their power. When they're about to get blown up in the flashback at the beginning, the four gods that are still around, in turn, count off one, two, three, four, and then click their fingers. And then there's one character who's sort of oh, mysterious. It's like it's like a count off. I'm just putting it together. It's like a count off, like at the beginning of a song. So like one, one, two, two three, four, and, and then, then they click. do the thing. I mean, it probably means something broader inside the rest of the context, but I think that's why it's one, two, three. Well, four. let's let's pause right there and then talk about something else that's sort of interesting. That's an accompaniment to this series is their song list that accompany each issue yeah okay, okay. so music is a really important part of the overall enrichment of reading this series yeah you can go on spotify and whatever and find playlists to go along have you them. listened to any of the playlists uh yeah i've listened to them do you think it adds to this sort of i definitely uh yeah i think so i mean it's an appropriate soundtrack it gets you it puts you in like it gives you little clues into like which you know what artists and songs and stuff they were thinking about when they came up with these characters or these specific moments yeah, i think it's interesting i don't think it's nece- like necessary you're not gonna be confused if you don't understand that they were like listening to churches when they wrote the comic but i think it's interesting because it kind of sets it in a very contemporary sort of climate where you would make something and then you would accompany it with a playlist like a yeah. digital music that everyone can access yeah yeah so so laura is this is a student who is a super fan and she is um like a lot of people her age and in her generation and it takes place in england she's obsessed with these gods which they call the pantheon Mm -hmm. and then so she is kind of like you said a super fan and she has this idea that she wants to meet it doesn't really matter which one of the gods that she meets. She wants to make some kind of like physical connection with one of the gods. Yeah. And then the Pantheon are the 12 gods. And they have celebrity influence. And they also have superpowers. Which is what the clicking and the, each one has a different power. Yeah. And each power seems to be linked to sort of the history of the deity that they're representing. Yeah. And so she, when we first see Laura, she's getting ready to go to one of Amaterasu's gigs, which is this very, like, which is, when when presented is this very, like, Stevie Nicks, like, flowy dress thing with lights, and she has, like, this transcendental religious experience and passes out, and when she wakes up, Lucifer is there, who's our other most important character, at least in this volume. Well, she passes out and she wakes up and she's in a room where there's like hundreds of people who have also passed out and are laying on these mats. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's drawing on the imagery of like the chill out tent, but there's also a very cult-like thing. There's like the idea of like a revival tent and like people, you know, pass out at those. Like there's all of this sort of mixing of artistic and musical and religious symbolism like from the very beginning going on here. I think it I don't know if this is the point to mention this or not, but aesthetically this comic focuses almost exclusively on the characters. There's really very little background 
and each person and God are highly detailed. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, it's not like there aren't backgrounds, but there are lots of panels that are just like a person's head rendered in fine detail in front of a solid colored background. Yeah, and each issue starts with a full page portrait of one of the characters. Yeah, those are the, those are the covers. Right. Um, yeah, and they're like these like super intense, they remind me of like, um, uh, of like a Jonathan Zemi close up. Like this sort of subjective close-up that you'd get in like uh, Silence of the Lambs or something of that, where it's just like this like intense image of a person's face. Yeah, and I think like the one for the first issue is Lucifer. They call her Lucy in the series. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a really sort of new wave, almost like aesthetic. It's like yeah. all in like blues and purples and it's highly detailed. And she sort of has this very androgynous look. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the characters, I notice, there's always some kind of, like, focus on their eyes. They yeah. either have, like, intense eye makeup or they have, like, when you get to some of the characters, they even have sort of, like, they look like superhero masks, but they're sort of painted on their faces. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the cover with Lucifer is that in the comic, Lucifer has blue eyes on the cover, Lucifer has super intense red eyes. Yeah. So Lara passes out and she meets Lucifer, who is drawn to her and makes a connection with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is like, you know, this is a grand tradition of comic book Lucifers. She's a lot like the Lucifer from Sandman. She's this, like, cheeky, talk, sort of talking in circles, like, equal parts, like, self-aggrandizing and self-deprecating sort of character. Yeah, I think it's, like, I think you're right, though. I think, like, the Lucifer that's depicted is often almost like a Loki character. They're, like, the trickster character, the sort of yeah, it's like dual-faced sort of con person. I think, like, like in Sandman, the difference is, like, Lucifer and Loki are both, like, these punished tricksters, but Lucifer doesn't care anymore, and Loki cares the most, which is his weakness. <laughs> and this is a very much a... Uh, this, like, the vibe you get from Lucifer, and it gets more clear as we go through this volume, is that she really wants you to think she doesn't care, and does care intensely. So Lucifer takes Lara to an after party and some of the gods are there mm-hmm. and they start to have a conversation and then you meet the second character who is recurring, Beth. What? The news reporter. Or isn't her name Cassandra? Cassandra. Who's Wait, there is someone named Beth though, right? I think, I thought her name was Beth. <laughs> okay, let me update my notes. Yeah, that would make sense because a lot of the people have names that are sort of um, that are characters sort of adjacent to a lot of the like mythology. You see a lot of like Greek mythology, a lot of um, reference to sort of like North mythology. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Cassandra. She's a reporter. She's a reporter, and she's trying to interview one of the gods and she's also trying to for some reason which we don't know at this point she has a grudge against the pantheon and she wants to reveal them as hoaxes yeah she's the she's the skeptic character so she exists in contrast to laura who is like the true believer super fan 
who like wants to be a god, wants to be famous, and whereas Cassandra is sort of like above it all and wants to tear these people down. I don't know if she's a news reporter, like an official news reporter, she's or if she's like a blogger or like like a private investigator at some point because she has these people that follow her around. I think she's uh, an actual news reporter. She has interns and stuff. Right, because at one point she says, like, she has all these degrees and she understands, like, you know, the religion behind the Pantheon, but she's very skeptical of their, like, celebrity. So, yeah, so she's being, like, very antagonistic in her questioning uh, and, like, bringing up in, like, an inch... She, like, brings up their prior identities and then Lucifer questions the uh, realness of her name, which we will later understand is, like, kind of fucked up. But it also makes the thing that she's doing kind of fucked up. Everybody's kind of an asshole. (laughs) So there's a weird scene, I guess, where one of the gods... What is her name? Samakat? Sakmet. Sakmet. She's like a... Feline inspired? Yeah, goddess? so Sakmet is a Egyptian god. She's one of the cat head ones, not Bastet though, which is like the most famous one. Um, she's traditionally, I think, portrayed as being like the daughter of Ra. Maybe she's associated with like the sun in the sky. So that's the thing: as more and more of these gods get revealed, there's this I thing where it's like they're basically all fall into two, one of two categories, which is like. Sky gods and underworld gods, or like celestial and chthonic gods, and then Lucifer is an interesting figure because she's both, right? But like Amaterasu is like a sky god and a sun god, so it's Sakmet. Lucifer is like an underworld god. We meet Ball is a sky god, but then there's also the Morrigan and Baphomet. So there's this sort of Someone makes a comment that someone's using a laser to tease Sakmet. And Lara, who's very observant and very um, concerned, she realizes that it's not the laser pointer that they were teasing her with originally and that somebody has a laser sight and is trying to assassinate the gods. Yeah, and uh, some of the hangers-on get shot and then... Lucifer uses her powers to blow up the sniper's heads. Right, and this is when you realize what her power is. There's a sort of nod that you know that her power is sort of somehow related to father, fire and explosions. Mm-hmm. Because, like, she's always smoking, and at she, one point she lights a, figure, a cigarette with her hand. Yeah, that's, like, the one of the first things we see her do when she's talking to Laura before she takes her to the after party is she lights a cigarette with a flame coming out of her thumb. I think it's also interesting to note that even though this does have some sort of um, asymmetrical paneling, most of the panels are squares or rectangles. It doesn't have a lot of that sort of weird organics kind of layout that you see like in Sandman or we saw in Swamp Thing. Yeah, this is like closer in line, uh, you know, in terms of stuff we've read to like By Chance or Providence or Klaus than it is to like really dense weird style of like a sandman or a swamp thing so lucifer gets arrested and she goes to in front of the uh judge 
the yeah. British equivalent of a judge. A, well, yeah, I think it's just a judge, right? A barrister is like a lawyer in England, right? Right. I don't know. They got weird. They got weird stuff going on there. Um, but yeah, and so it's this like this absurd court scene where Lucifer is like. I just snap my fingers. You can't prove that I did anything. And the judge, like, makes this legal decision that Lucifer, and presumably by extension all the gods, are directly responsible for any unexplained phenomena that occur in their presence. Thus establishing that the court legally recognizes the supernatural nature of the pantheon, which I'm sure burns Cassandra up something awful. Oh, I would think so. So then she's kind of like hint, like teasing him, saying like, "All I did was click," and then she puts her hands in the in the form of doing a click, but she doesn't actually do it. And then his head explodes anyway. And she clicks, and then his head explodes because it's like it's a page where it's like three panels. She has her fingers up like she's going to click them. We see the judge's face, and he's like, "Don't." Then she does, and then his head explodes. The explosion looks—I don't know if this is important or not, but. The explosion looks like the explosion that Lucifer caused to the snipers, except that was rendered in red and yellow, and this has blue in it. I don't know if that means anything. Yeah, but it's We see another head explosion later that very pointedly does not look like Lucifer's head explosion. This head explosion really has this sort of Lichtenstein-inspired pop art look to it. You see, like, the little polka dot... Yeah. Really, like, exaggerated polka dots. There's like, and, yeah, there's, like, zipatone going on on, like, the judge's hands and desk. Yeah, and then the colors are sort of like that, sort of oversaturated sort of colors. Bright red, yellows, uh, hot pinks, and turquoise. Yeah, it's kind of like a really dramatic explosion. And then Lucifer is arrested again and insists that she did not do this. She, all she did was click her finger. She wasn't trying to make anyone's head explode. And this wasn't her. And she's being framed for judge-side. I don't know what the term for killing a judge is. Can you go back to the preface where you see the character that has the face mask on? Yes. What is that? Anake? 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 Something like that? Yeah. And talk a little bit about that character. Because well, we didn't mention it. I mean, I assumed we would wait until she gets introduced in the story. Oh, okay. Because she hasn't even come up yet. Okay, so then that was the end of issue one. Yeah. And then issue two starts. Yeah, so, okay, so issue two starts and Lucifer says, Get Ananki, an Anake, please. Like, we get, like, a... We go back to Lucifer being dragged out of the court, and we get this moment where she leans into and tries to say to Amaterasu, get Anake, and Laura overhears it. Right. And so she's, um, that character's like one of the, ah, oh, there's a term for it. It's like the protogenoi, protogenoi? Not good. It would be Ja. Proto Genoi or something like that. Which are these like it's her and Kronos? Kronos? Okay. So there's it's Kronos. Her and Kronos are like the primordial gods of Greek mythology, who their birth essentially signifies the start of like the physical universe. As opposed to this sort of like 
wild potential of chaos that existed beforehand. And they're separate from, like, the Titans and the Olympian gods, but sort of exist with them. Some sources put Anake as the, like, mother of the fates, I think. Um, But I don't think that that's super consistent. But she's the character in the preface when the building is exploding and the reoccurrence is ending and those gods are dying, she walks away. So yeah. she exists outside all the of, time, yeah. outside of the recurrence, but also she manages the recurrence. Which makes sense with the way that that character is portrayed in mythology. She's also sort of like identified with like, I think like animating force and stuff like that. Like it's one of those those figures in mythology where I think it's sort of unclear if they're supposed to be a person or not. I mean, same thing with Kronos, who's like the personification of time, uh, who has not shown up yet in this. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, so that's that's who Lucifer wants Amaterasu to get, and who Laura overhears. So then Laura, who's sort of a little bit like. Um disconnected from her family she feels like she doesn't fit in and she's not really doing well at school apparently she spends a lot of time not at school yeah she's supposedly a college student she decides she's going to help lucifer yeah and she uh, does some googling there's a nice little like meta joke where we see her phone and like the results are like site with no relevance blah 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 another site with no relevance blah 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 she finds a Wikipedia article and learns what I basically just said because I basically have a Wikipedia level understanding. Yeah, and I think also I, one of the things that I liked about this story was that not only do you see the conversations and the interactions that Laura has, but you also in the same panels get an insight into her sort of inner monologue, yeah. which sort of runs concurrent to the actions of what she's having. Yeah, and then a week later, she lies her way into visiting Lucifer. Yeah, because you see the prison, and you see people lolling around the prison, and they're all sort of Lucifer followers that are dressed the way that she's dressed. Yeah, and they have, like, flags with pentagrams on them. Uh, Lucifer is in, like, a Hannibal Lecter, like, plastic, clear prison cell, and she has these, like, cuffs on that... Bind her Her index and middle finger together so she can't click her fingers. Yeah, and this is when she asks if she has any cocaine. And then when she doesn't, she asks if she has some cigarettes and she doesn't. But they sort of talk and she tells the backstory of how she became Lucifer. Yeah, so she she says that Ananki... Man, I really feel like somehow I'm not... Even though I've pronounced it every possible way, I feel like somehow I'm not saying this name right. Uh, she She's the one who, like, finds these people and tells them they're going to be gods and, like, either imbues them with godhood or awakens some godhood within them. And, like, so Lucifer's story is she basically just appeared to her one night when she was home alone. And, like, we get this crazy sequence where she says... You are of the pantheon. You will be loved. You will be hated. You will be brilliant. Within two years, you will be dead. And Lucifer is like falling through this like abyss of just a bunch of repetitions of Ananki's head. And she's just like an old lady wearing a mask that kind of looks like a moth. 
And she has, like, glowing purple eyes. Yeah, and then as she's going through this sort of tunnel, she transforms from her teenage self into sort of a fiery version of herself and then slowly sort of lands on her feet in her full white Tom Wolf-inspired Lucifer outfit. Yeah. But it looks like... Oh, and then, yeah, they have this really dramatic, like, panel where Lucifer is sort of still on fire in the suit and there's all these feathers around and there's a sort of a burnt site like circle in yeah, the backyard yeah. where she steps out of it. So. so I guess this is at the point where once they get reincarnated, they do they have memories of themselves or they're only memories of them the gods that they're They have memories of themselves. I don't even know how much memories they have of their previous incarnations as the god, actually. I think you I think they do because later on when we meet Minerva, mm-hmm. she talks about being only fourteen years old. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, well, if they didn't have memories of who they were, I don't think Lucifer would have been able to tell Laura this story. Right. But yeah, so Lucifer's like uh yeah, Anaki's like in charge, she's been around forever, she's the one who tells people what's up. Well, this is what part wasn't clear to me is, are they chosen? I mean, I think that's supposed to be unclear. And you can't, you can't say no. It just happens to you. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a character we'll meet later that whose situation deals directly with the idea of whether or not you can say no. So, so then Lucifer tries to get Laura to help her, and she wants to help her. Mm-hmm. Because she's obviously has some kind of connection to Lucifer. Well, Lucifer also promises, like, oh, you know, uh, I can make you, like, special. You can be, like, one of my demons, like how Woden has his Valkyries. And then they sort of cut this deal that Laura will help Lucifer in exchange for some some piece of what Lucifer's got going on. Yeah, so... So then it cuts like pretty dramatically to the portrait gallery and this is where um see this is what confused me about cassandra you meet cassandra and she's at the portrait gallery and instead of having like her film crew that she had in the first scene she now just has people who are taking still photographs of the portraits is are they with her well i think it always seems like she's Got, like, other people that are dressed in all black around she, yeah, her? Yeah, she has at least two people with her that are, her, like, her crew of some sort. Everyone has a crew, or they're getting a crew, or... Yeah, I think so. I think what's going on here with her is, uh, she's, this is just a meeting. That's why she doesn't have the film crew with her. The other people, but she does have, like, her interns or whatever. And one of them just happens to be taking a picture of one of the paintings because... She's in the portrait natural national portrait gallery. You might want to take a picture. Yeah, and this is kind of where you learn that Cassandra has this sort of background where she has an intellectual interest in the deities and the pantheon. She's studied them. I guess she's she was into them before they were cool, and now she's mad because everyone else is into. Like that's what her character is. She was studying them before the recurrence happened. Then the recurrence actually happened, and she got... Now she doesn't like them anymore. Yeah, now there's a whole bunch of, like, hangers on and people who are jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, this was the part where I was reading it, and I was like, oh, no, it's me. 
this is this is who I am. I've been owned by this comic. So this is like this is when it really starts to go like bananas. Like it just gets if the first issue was weird, but it gets like next level weird in the next couple of pages. So Cassandra tells Laura to go and try to find someone. What, well, they they go through like a list of possible suspects. They go through essentially like all the gods that they know of that are currently incarnated on Earth to try and figure out which ones are the most likely. Right, and then Cassandra decides she's going to go to this new Valhalla that Woden has built in some kind of mansion. And it's sort of like almost like an exclusive like private club at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Laura decides that she's going to go look for one of the other gods. Yeah, and so we, this is where we get the most complete list of gods that are around so far. Because when they go through the suspects, Amaterasu, who is there, Ball, Sakmet, Woden, Inanna, Minerva, the Morrigan, and Tara. Who is the one I think then we she don't says, see at all in this volume. And then Laura says, and Anake. Because she doesn't know who she is, she just knows the name. Yeah. And so she sends Laura to see the Morrigan. This one really... This is super... Yeah, is this, this what you're talking about? It being This issue... Is, yeah, it's the next issue where it gets really, really weird. So it turns out that the Morrigan is... It, um, lives in the underground well, she at a perform, rave. Form, yeah, she's like... Yeah, she like lives... I guess she does like live literally in the underground like the train tunnels. And this is kind of like one of those things where like... I guess rave culture was also really at the peak at that point where there were always these sort of stories about exclusive raves that yeah. you have to know someone and know where it is. I mean, and this you have is to... a very UK thing. I think more so than it is here with the like, oh, uh, we're going to have like a rave in like a weird like abandoned building or a barn or something that like, I my understanding is rave culture is much more corporate here in America than it is overseas. Right. It's almost like like the old 80s punk scene where you would have like a concert in like an abandoned factory. There this exclusive rave is taking place in an underground like sort of unused tube station. There's a cool thing going on here with the way her descent into the underground is portrayed where it sort of stops being a comic for a while. And we get these pages that are one panel and then like text Descending down a black background. But yeah, she has to go literally underground to this show to see the Morrigan. And then everybody's waiting around for the Morrigan to show up. And she's fashionably late. And then when someone says, is she coming? A voice answers no. And uh, Danzig shows up. Yeah, I do love this. (laughs) This guy in a leather jacket with like sunglasses and like a belt with a skull on it. And his uh, necklace is like a long chain with a giant like goat's head on it. Yeah. He shows up and he says that uh, he's the new king of the underground and he has the Morgan severed head and there's like fire all around him. And that is the end of issue two. Yeah. This is also the moment where I have to ask, I, I, we have to wrestle with the question of um, when does outside knowledge become a spoiler because like if i was to explain 
to someone that might ask me who Baphomet is, that might potentially spoil something. Well, I think it's almost like having... A, and the same thing with the Morgan. I mean, that really becomes important if you know the backstory of the Morgan. But I think if you know that backstory, it is almost like you have an in. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're in. You're in the inner circle and you understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like exclusive like content that you yourself provide yeah so do you want to talk about baphomet or do you not want to talk about baphomet i just think baphomet is an interesting well it's interesting that there are two different characters that i probably wouldn't call gods that are like demons in this lineup and then you also have a figure like ball whose name has been appropriated for demons as well but Baphomet is interesting because there aren't, isn't really any, you, you can argue that like Lucifer is like a, an incarnation of Apollo or some shit like that. But there really isn't any worship of Baphomet historically. Baphomet was basically a figure invented to smear the Knights Templar that then became incorporated into later occult traditions I because think, of its infamy. I think that a lot of these gods have this sort of shared history where they're they themselves are appropriated by other religions yeah because like ball is also sort of important in like christianity and then well yeah see, like that's the reason that, that god is called the lord right is because so, ball literally means lord but i think the whole concept of each year the recurrent every 90 years when the recurrence happened these gods appropriate a human body, mm-hmm. but they themselves historically have been appropriated by different religions. Like you took like Woden, like you know, he, in Greek mythology, like Zeus is you know Zeus is the equivalent of of Woden, and then like so these gods could also sort of interconnect into other types of religion. Yeah. So you have like Christianity and North mythology and Greek mythology, and then like. If you even go further, like Zoroastrianism is like in you know imbued some of the sort of gods with different characteristics, and I think it sort of melds all these different sort of religions and their mythologies into one sort of modern like pot, and then you have something like the Morgan who really doesn't have like relevance in like current religion. No, but, like, she's stuck around in pop culture because there's that theory that Morgan Le Fay is a reinterpretation or a borrowing of the Morrigan. Yeah, so I think and it's kind of like... like the weird, the, you know, the, uh, what's her, the, the witches from Macbeth right. evoke the, like, because the Morrigan is, like, this weird, like, triple goddess thing where she, it's, like, one entity but also three sisters, which we see in this issue, we get, like, a overview of the three different forms of the morrigan right and that's kind of important because if you're reading this and you don't know about the morrigan then this whole storyline sort of doesn't make as much sense until the very end and then you put it all together yeah so baphomet starts putting on a show with the like and making the severed head of the morrigan talk about how great he is and say a bunch of like gibberish and it calls to mind like uh dadaism and like cut up poetry some of the she says Baphomet is a serious intellectual capable of cultural illusions. T.S. Eliot is an anagram of toilets. This is something Baphomet knows. 
Baphomet thinks abandon all hope. Ye who enter here should be tattooed on every birth canal as a warning to exiting children. Baphomet is definitely not fucking with you. It kind of also reminds me of that whole, like, Dottis thing, the exquisite corpse, where, like, she's very beautiful, even though she's a severed head, you know, she's very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, and then a bunch of crows shoot out of the train tunnel and take the form of Babd, B-A-B-D, I think is the the way you spell it, It is one of the forms of the Morrigan. She's, like, the vengeful aspect. So that's when you sort of realize that this is almost like a like performance art piece between the Morgan and the and Baph- Baphomet. Baphomet. Yeah, and they start having like a very theatrical god fight where like Baphomet is like summoning ghosts that died on the tracks, and the Morgan is making fun of his tiny penis. But also, she has the most sort of superheroy aesthetic. Yeah, you know, she has like this. Really extravagant red hair and this sort of like pointed mask painted on, and she's wearing sort of it's a Victorian inspired outfit, but it's definitely got like some steampunk aesthetic with some like leather bodice, and you know, and she's got sort of they all have like facial piercings that match. So this is how you know which three characters are the Morgan because they have these sort of dimple studs and chin you know like lip rings and things like that yeah i think babbed has all three and then like the morgan just has the like dimple studs and maybe the third one just has the nose ring yeah i think that's the case yeah because when they show them no no she's got them too i don't know never mind that's they i think they all have the yeah dimples but they have some either lip rings or earrings or because like the morgan when they show her severed head they show half of her hair is pushed back and she always has these giant earrings on yeah with like crow skulls or something on them yeah and so laura diffuses the situation by picking up the uh the fake severed head Mm -hmm. of the morgan and uh she says, I never knew her, and if Babd not Morgan is here, maybe the king was right to play with an absent throne, for are we not all here to play? Which snaps her out of her uh, rage, and she sort of goes back to normal, just in time to get provoked into another fight with Baphomet that threatens to envelop everyone in a cloud of like smoke and crows before the cops show up. Yep, so the cops show up. And then one of them gets incinerated. And then that's when we see the third manifestation of the Morrigan. And she brings the police officer back to life. Yeah, gentle Annie. And she, But she says that he's sleeping and he's not dead. Also, we see Baphomet's fire and it's like this like neon thing. But it looks pointedly very different from the explosion that Lucifer used to kill the snipers and the explosion that was used to kill the judge. Which I think is a pretty clear indication that... While he may have been a suspect, it probably wasn't Baphomet. Right, and I think this is when you start to realize that, like, the mystery story that Laura is trying to solve is who actually killed the judge, and that each of the gods have has a different fire, like, signal, like their aesthetic for their fire that they produce. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the police the. Uh, General Annie brings the police officer back to life. The Morgan goes back into the train tunnel. Laura chases after her. 
and she asks her about the mystery and she says like oh baphomet didn't do it because we were making love uh and i wish i could help lucifer but we're not supposed to and then the police arrest laura and i think this is also sort of the first indication that there's a larger conspiracy going on that involves lucifer yeah she's being set up by somebody or something for some reason and it is still unclear as to why laura gets in a big fight with her parents and then we get more of her and cassandra right this sort of like they're that's they're sort of rehashing what Laura learned from Lucifer and then what happened the night before. Yeah, and we got this sort of like secondhand conversation between Cassandra and Lucifer about the different gods, which is amusing. I like the way that it's done too because it's like it's like four rows of panels and each panel is Cassandra and Lucifer and then you get both parts of the conversation at the same time. Yeah. So she asks about Tara, Tara. So the thing with Tara is they don't know which god she is because there's like a bunch of different gods that are named Tara. Right. And so that's like a, like another little meta thing. And then is this the issue where you learn that the, even who reincarnates is sort of fluid? Yeah. That some gods don't come back every cycle and some gods do come back every yeah. cycle? I believe this is where we learn that. Yeah. And then this is, I love this part, it was... This sort of seems like a very British depiction of, like, a tough guy. And Ball shows up and he's got this red, like, well, MC Hammer suit on. I think that's a, I think that's supposed to invoke Kanye. Oh, that's that... supposed to invoke, like, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy era, like, power video Kanye with the red suit and the gold chain. But, yeah, so they're having this conversation. <laughs> they're going through all of them. And they get to Ball. And we find out that... Uh, Ball does not like Lucifer because uh, he per- didn't particularly like it when I had a little quality time with his boyfriend either. <laughs> uh, and then <laughs> they start having this conversation and there's like, there's two balls, basically. Well, basically. There's Ball Haman, which is the Carthaginian, like, king god. Like, their Zeus-type figure. Uh-huh. And then there's Baal Hadad, which is like this, I think, Sumerian, like, god of, like, storms and harvests and shit. Yeah, and I think that's the god that's the false idol in Christianity. Yeah, I think in so. In the stories where they build the golden calf. Yeah, and so there, she calls him the Carthaginian god of fuck you. It's not, <laughs> not Baal Hadad, but Baal Haman, which is the one that... Cassandra seems to think he is. And she's a rare... She brings up the idea that there's some historical evidence that the cult of Balhaman sacrificed children. Uh, which I didn't know. But apparently that's a thing. And then he shows up and he's like, if you're going to be a hater behind my back, make sure you're behind my back. And he's like standing like an action figure. Yes. Like, very muscular in his suit and just thick-necked and yeah. Uh, yeah, he's pretty great. Yeah, I like Ball a lot. And then there's a really cool... The next issue has a really cool cover uh, with him where he's like wreathed in lightning. I can't tell what's going on with his eyes. It's not this, but it almost looks like he has Batman logos in his eyes. Yeah, I can't really tell because he does have like these sort of shades on. Yeah, and so he... Oh, you know what I think it is? I thought it looked like maybe like a sheep, but then I was thinking about like the... The whole story, the Christianity story, where he builds the 
where they build the golden calf, you know, like that. Yeah, I don't know. We didn't bring it up earlier, but Ball was like on a new. He was like on a news show and like got in a fight with the guy interviewing him. Like he's supposed to be like this like volatile. Like I said, like very Kanye, very like you know famous rapper or like prickly uh, athlete type. Yeah, like he, a, kind of a Muhammad Ali sort of thing. He's kind of like the guy who's like mad at his like celebrity but also mad if he doesn't get attention so yeah. it's kind of like yeah. and he's getting this giant so they go to valhalla which is woden's it's woden's valhalla the retreat of the pantheon and he's like having this giant <laughs> mural painted of himself where he's like in a business suit but surrounded <laughs> by angels yes <laughs> which again i think is very so much supposed to evoke a lot of the imagery that was around Kanye's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy album and like the power video. He's in the suit, but he's also got his like, he's making two fists. He's also standing like an action figure again (laughs) at that part. The the mural is really great. Like the first panel of this issue is a picture of his face in the mural. I think it's interesting too. This this volume that we're reading at the very end of this issue is has a group of variant art and mm-hmm. one of the variations art is this mural that he one of the authors mentions that they hired a different artist just to create this mural mm-hmm. that they could put in here as a way to advertise the first volume so it's interesting because the mural is there and that's one artist and then you have the characters from the series painted uh drawn and colored by a different artist yeah yeah so this like valhalla is kind of like their clubhouse yeah and it's like it's because it's woden's thing it's all tron lines and like everything's like clear glass and plastic and uh so ball says straight up that he's ball hadad and not ball haman and that they had it wrong. Uh, and that he's, he does lightning and not fire. So he, to like, that's his alibi for not killing Lucifer. Right. I mean, not killing the judge and framing Lucifer. Um, and he's just like really boisterous this whole time. Uh, he says, he, if you're going to spew some of your venom, girl, here's your quote. I've always claimed I'm a god even before I knew I was one. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's like next level boasting. Yeah. yeah. I like Woden a lot. I, I mean, you don't get a lot of like character from him at, in this first issue, but I like the sort of aesthetic that he has going on. Yeah, but also when Lucifer talks about him, it implies he's like a 4chan anime Nazi. <laughs> which is like... Probably accurate. I've been a lot of those EDM dudes under their helmets who were 4chan anime Nazis. Yeah, so. So he's got like a golden mask and then his Valkyries are sort of like, I guess his like entourage. Yeah. And he has like a chain that has a lightning bolt on it. And then Yeah, he's the, like holding it though. He's not like wearing it. And then in the background you start to see the other gods. Yeah, so this is where we see uh, Minerva for the first time. Who's yes. a child, but she's got like a a prototype owl phone. It was like a robot owl that's a phone, I guess. I guess they didn't want it to be confused with like the clockwork owls from like Clash of the Titans, I guess. Yeah, sure. 
so Cassandra is not allowed into like the inner circle, but Laura is, and she gets to meet an Anki, who kind of really has this sort of um, Cenobite vibe from her. Yeah, and she's like, I mean, all of them have like a like sort of like baroque high fashion thing, but she's got like this gauzy mask that looks like a moth, and like these like this back piece that's like these like spindly sort of like it's like feathers they look yeah or like a sun made out of like black lace yeah it's also interesting to note that when woden talks he talks in a black box with yellow neon letters and all the other ones talk in white boxes with black well and his is a box and there's our balloons too which is the other thing his is like angled and they're they're basically all saying that they didn't they couldn't do it Amaterasu admits that she could have done it, but insists that she didn't do it. And and that's when we sort of learn, I don't understand why maybe it'll be revealed, but they say that they can't do anything for Lucifer and they don't want to. Which I don't understand why they don't want to. And then they say like, oh, if she well, stays no, the, in her cell, it'll be better for her. idea is that Lucifer has gotten this... Lucifer's, I guess, the thing that I think is being hinted at here is, like, they're all supposed to play some kind of particular role, right? And so Lucifer is supposed to be, like, the rebel and, like, this representation of wild inspiration and needs to, in some way, be separate from the Pantheon. So if they step in to help Lucifer, it'll be, like, a show of solidarity with Lucifer and they need people to believe that Lucifer is different from them in some way and stands apart in some manner, I think is the thing that's going on here. Yeah, I was kind of thinking maybe they were trying to protect their own celebrity by not I think that's associating with someone who has, like, a bad reputation. Because, I mean, everyone saw her set that judge's head on, explode that head, or what it perceived to be her exploding that head. Yeah, because the thing that Ananki says is, Lucifer has always had trouble believing in gods, including herself. We must make the world understand how unlike the rest of the pantheon the great rebel is. Otherwise, this risks being the last recurrence, and inspiration will leave the world forever. Humanity would not realize what it had lost until it was gone. I mean, I guess that's also the idea of, like, she doesn't want to create some kind of, like, war between humans and gods. So... They can't do anything, supposedly. Yeah, because that's how it ends. She says, I'm sorry. Tell Lucifer, above all else, it is not too late, not too late. It is not too late not to be foolish. Right. And Laura calls him out. Yeah, she says the whole thing's bullshit. You suck. (laughs) And one of you is the killer. Yeah, so then there's like a little interlude where you see the black page with the icons and then it cuts to Lara going back to the prison and she's meeting with Lucifer and this is when she asks her if she has any cigarettes and she gives her a pack of smokes yeah and then I guess after she said they won't help her then it reveals that Lucifer actually didn't need their help anyway she bursts off her um, finger cuffs and she burns Two holes right through the glass that's keeping her there and she walks out of the prison because she wants to have a smoke and get a cup of coffee. Yeah, and she takes Laura's phone and starts listening to Play With Fire by the Rolling Stones and goes on a rampage. She also reveals that 
her promise to Laura was bullshit and she can't actually do that. She just wanted help. And, I mean, it's clearly, like, whatever she's doing, it seems like it's supposed to be, like, a blaze of glory thing. Like, she's just kind of like, fuck it, I'm done. Right. And then the, the issue ends with her just walking out of the prison. Mm-hmm. Because she's sort of burned her way out of the prison. And all of her bridges. Right, exactly. So, And it's interesting, too, because when she's in the prison, she has white, like, sneakers on. And then when she's leaving, she has white high heels on. I don't know if that makes a difference, but I guess she's, like, fully into her, like, badass self now. And she's just going to wreak havoc all over the city. Yeah. So. And then we had issue five, which is the last issue in this volume. Uh, the cover... I believe it's of Tara. It's not a character we've been introduced to yet. Yeah. And that's, she's the one who has the sort of painted face. The sort of, I don't know. Is she the one who is like most culturally appropriated? Well, they talk very directly about Amaterasu engaging in cultural appropriation because her human incarnation is a white girl from England and she is portraying a Shinto goddess. Right. And I think this is sort of the same thing with this whole um, boho lifestyle. There's lots of like Coachella ladies who like appropriate like sensitive cultural symbols into their like aesthetic. So I think she's one of those. So that just sort of makes me think that like does Anake just pick who she wants to be the manifestation? Or is there some indication of the person's personality that makes them? I don't think we know enough to, to determine that at this point. We only really know the origin story of one of them. And it's really not clear in Lucifer's origin story. It's like she was waiting for her god self to be evoked. Or the god came down and possessed her. Yeah, it's unclear. not really clear. But we know that she does not like... Um, Tara, because she defaces her uh, wheat paste art. Yeah. So, and she gets her coffee and she gets her cigarette, and then there's a scene of her like listening to her headphones and drinking her coffee, where the whole street is on fire. Yeah. And then uh, there's basically a standoff with the police. Amaterasu shows up and tries to talk Lucifer down. Ball does like a like a Thor, like a Marvel Comics Thor entrance and like explodes whole, to the ground in a wreathed in lightning. This whole like aesthetic of Amara. Amaterasu. She really has a sort of like 90s like rogue from like the X-Men aesthetic, don't you think? Yeah, she's like long red hair and then her face is like painted. Um, it's just sort of like around the eyes. Yeah, no, I could see that. But she's also wearing like a White dress with, like, red tassels under the arms at this point. Yes. That's very 90s. Yeah. And then, so then, Lucifer and Ball get into a fight. Yeah, I love how... looks really cool. I love how that's also very, like, sort of a nod to, like, comics from, like, that, like, time period. Because he shows up and he's, like... He lands so hard on the ground that rocks just shoot up. That's what there's I was saying. lightning bolts and lightning bolts coming out of his eyes. And he's got this sort of, his red suit on that's kind of the way that it's drawn makes it almost look like a superhero suit that he's wearing. Yeah, and he's wearing the chain with the lightning bolt that Woden was holding in the in the scene in Valhalla. Why do you think Woden, unless, did Woden give him his? 
I mean, maybe he just made him that thing. I don't know. I don't. Remember. Is there an explanation in that scene? No, he's just holding it, and then the next thing you know, like Ball's wearing it. Maybe it's a present. Is Woden his boyfriend? That's probably not the case. But... I thought he like hung out with the Lady Valkyries. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> lady Valkyrie also is the lady part is not needed. Yeah, but kind that's of okay. redundant. <laughs> that's okay. But yeah, they get in this cool fight. There's like this weird like uh, pixelady effect. Over some of their fighting. And then you see also now um, Lucifer has her red eyes. Yeah. And then Sackman gets in to the fight. Uh, and she's got like sunlight pouring out of her face and her eyes and mouth. And Laura becomes concerned that they're going to kill each other. So she runs into the tube station and calls on the Morrigan. And then the Morrigan shows up. So as she's about to get creamed by a train. And then pulls Lucifer out of the street and deposits her in like a generic apartment which actually looks a lot like laura's family's apartment because sandra's film crew's there yes of course oh we also find out earlier i forgot uh the reason that ball was able to find them when they were talking about him was because he got one of the interns to give up cassandra's location right so there's that and then Lucifer is also um, roughed up. She has scratches and a fat lip and a, a half up. joker. Yeah, <laughs> like spray, like and, smeared blood. And off her the hair side of her is mouth. disheveled, and but her suit still perfect. Yeah, she also has this point where she apologizes to Cassandra for questioning her name, and we find out that Cassandra is trans, which again makes her questioning of the pantheon's reinvention of their identities a little bit hypocritical right right so that's what i'm saying this like there's lots of inclusive details in this yeah so uh so then lucifer goes she wants to leave and then oh the morgan offers to let lucifer stay in the underworld with her right and then as lucifer is going to leave Anki shows up and explodes her head. Which, again, looks very different from any other explosion we've seen so far. It's like a bunch of, like, lines of light with, like, a pink background that it seems like it's almost, like, erasing the head. Right. And then it's very graphic. The head falls down. Big lots, lots of blood. And, uh, Laura's very upset and she's cradling Lucifer's body and Morgan shows up and she asks her to save her and that's when you... Realize that the third manifestation of the Morgan can't bring people back to life. Yeah, there's some kind of restriction on that power. I guess if they're not dead yet or they're not supposed to die or whatever. Also, it's important to note that nobody sees Anki explode Lucifer's head. When they come out, she's just like covering her face and crying because Lucifer's dead. And Laura pleads with the Morgan to bring back Lucifer and she can't. And I think this is also, there's a montage where Lara is talking to the media and there's this interaction with her family and that's when her family fully realizes that she has made a conscious choice to be involved in the sort of culture of the Pantheon. Yeah, and then alone at night she goes to smoke a cigarette and on a whim clicks her fingers and the cigarette ignites. Yeah, so, I mean, what is this saying? Is it saying that Lucifer did, in fact, imbue her with power? Or is she one of the Pantheon? Because Are don't. they all... I guess that's the cliffhanger. Yeah. 
the cliffhanger is she has powers, and then at the end, or does she? Have she powers? says, "Oh God, it's not, it's not over." I mean, I feel like it's just as likely. I don't remember what happens after this. Basically, I remember these first five issues from when I was reading them as they were coming out, but I basically don't remember anything that happens after that. I feel like it's just as likely that like the reveal of the next issue is that like Lucifer's standing across the room and did it herself. <laughs> But yeah, so that's the end. Is they? I mean, she says it outright. Uh, oh God, it's not over, right? So like the story continues. Yeah. There's a broader mystery now. It's not just like who framed Lucifer. It's like why did Ananki kill her? What's going on with Laura and Lucifer's powers? All sorts of stuff. And I think it's like interesting. I don't know if the variant art reveals like what's happening in the future, but there is like a full panel of laura and she has eye makeup on one side of her well that's face. the makeup she puts on when she's going to the yeah. concert in the beginning of this and then you see like there's a four panel and it's laura and lucifer and then there's one of them where there's two sides of their faces each side of their face is displayed and then the fourth panel is sort of like a combination uh yeah there's a chip zadarsky one that's the writer and the artist yeah um, I have that one, and I have the last one is a Becky Cloonan variant. I have that one, too. But I want to, in the Apocrypha section, which is the last part of the volume that we have, you see the you see the full panel of what the mural looks like. And that's what I was talking about. It's like there are angels, but there are also some of the gods are there as well. And I guess Nathan Fairbairn? yeah. He did the artwork for that. Yeah, that's cool. So what did you think overall of the first ish, the first volume? Uh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was, int- it was intriguing. Um, I'm interested in the mysteries. I like all the mythological references. I think there's lots of cool stuff to be done in this space of playing with the sort of intersection and comparisons between celebrity and art and religion and folklore and all that stuff yeah i like the i mean i like the focus on the design of the characters the sort of rendering of like the hyper realistic rendering of the people i like that a lot i like this sort of um the symbols like the black pages the half title pages where you see all of the icons. That was like a big thing at the time. Like Jonathan Hickman kind of did a lot of that. There, there, was, there were lots of like title pages or like title panels that were just like mm-hmm. a blank thing going on in comics at the time. And I think it gives like a weird, I don't know how it does this, but I feel like it, it lends an almost more sort of a cinematic or like prestige TV feel to the comic. It, de- it definitely gives that sort of like high end almost like literature it's almost like a serialization it kind of is like and i think it works better in the combined volumes because you get to see all of the pages i can imagine if you were reading one paper issue that you might be sort of disappointed that a whole entire page was like wasted in the storyline yeah i don't i don't i never really bothered me all that much but yeah like this was like around the time where like um Avengers would have this, like, big designed, like, sigil at the beginning of every issue, and the different parts of it would be highlighted to indicate which characters were in the issue. Like, this was, like, a big trend in comics at the time. It's still sort of happening now. I think also those sort of icons are almost like brand logos, which I think would be, like, 
if each god was like a pop culture icon, then they would have like a symbol for branding. They'd have like they would be concerned about their brand identity, and I think that these little icons sort of promote that. Mm-hmm. I like this sort of really high, highly like enriched like colors, the very saturated colors. Yeah, and then sort of like I mean, Matt contrast. Wilson is like he's he is a, a very hot colorist in comics like and he does he does a lot of work yeah and i think the colors sort of give it that i mean the the backgrounds are sparse Mm -hmm. they're not like highly detailed like the sandman background so i think that dependence on the color to sort of give that tone and that kind of feeling of what's happening like emotional feeling of what's happening in each of the panels i think that really sort of pushes it along i like that it was really inclusive i like that there were lots of different um ethnicities and genders and sexual orientations i like that there was like an openness to like different lifestyles i thought that was really nice but then i figured it's late enough in the 2000s that that kind of is like almost required oh well i don't know if it's required if it's required then a lot of people are not uh are not meeting said requirements yeah i like that though i mean it wasn't sort of I like when it's more aware and it's not like this sort of stereotype of what a superhero looks like. And I kind of like that. Yeah. Because I feel like if you're looking for a role model in a comic book, you don't want to see like a buxom like female character that, you know what I mean? You want to see like different body types and different things like that. I like this sort of mix of like religion mm-hmm. and mythology and deities and pop culture. I thought that was really interesting. And I like the full page, the faces, the focus on the faces, the opening um, covers for each of the issues. Yeah, I think that remains pretty consistent throughout the rest of the series. I don't know if unless it becomes more fleshed out in the later issues i know it's supposed to be sort of a comment on pop culture and like pop icon worship but i don't feel like that's really that strong at this point it's like pointing out that there is that culture but Mm. it's not really making a comment on it at this point so i'm hoping that maybe that'll be fleshed out as the series moves on and i mean i guess like the comment about like social media influencers we talked about that earlier i think Mm. that that sort of these characters are that way, plus they're gods, plus they're superheroes. So there's a lot of components that I don't really understand how they're all going to fit together. But I'm curious to see it at the end of the series. Sure, yeah. Do we have anything else to say? I don't think so. I thought I was more confused about it the first time I read it. But once I, you know, used did some librarian research and came to a better understanding, I have... Which I've mentioned many times in this podcast. I have a really hard time keeping my Greek gods straight. Like their backstories and things like that. So that was a little bit confusing for me. But once I did my basic. The first time I read it. Not understanding like who the gods were. Kind of like off put me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then when I after I read it the first time. And I went back and I read it again to do my notes. It made more sense. So. Yeah okay. I can see that. What did you like about it? Um, I think I pretty much said all the stuff that I like. I like the dialogue. It's I could see someone being off put by it because it's very, um, 
I don't know what the word is. It's very, like, stylized. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's very quippy and, like, a little cutesy. But I enjoyed it. It's very writery writing. If you get what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, I, I, I could see, like, that you would be more drawn to something that's a little more gritty and realistic. Sure. And it does kind of have that sort of pop kind of music kind of... Yeah, this is like a very post-Buffy style of dialogue. I think they even mentioned Buffy at one point. They do, point. because when they're talking about Tara, they're like, we don't know if she's like the Buddhist one or the Hindu one or if she's Tara from Buffy. And there's lots and lots... Because it's about pop culture, there are lots and lots of pop culture references in the dialogue. But I think it works because like some of the characters... like. Cassandra has the most, I think, of that, like, writer-y-ass writer dialogue. And I think part of that is because she, like, is trying to impress and intimidate people with how smart she is. But I also think that she, the character of Cassandra, is the person who is supposed to reveal some of the backstory to yeah, us. sure, yeah. So there's always, like, that literary character that's, like, the know-it-all that has to point out the obvious to the reader. As this, She's almost like the substitute for the reader because you're kind of like, I don't know if I would believe this is happening. Or... Yeah. Well, she also, yeah. So there's also this thing that where she's like, I went to all of these performances and, like, I didn't feel anything. Well, you also get the impression that there's more going on with her than her being just this skeptical researcher, reporter who's trying to reveal. Because she kind of believes in the Pantheon. Yeah. And I think it's exactly like you said, she's mad because now everyone knows about the Pantheon. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely think that's the thing that's going on with her. Which I like. I like. I like that. Well, because that's very like you know that touches a raw nerve for you. Sure. Yeah. So, that's what I said. I mean, I said that. I admitted to it. I'm not trying to hide it. Well, I think that's the whole thing. I mean, this whole thing with like the this culture of like these sort of cultural icons or whatever. There's always those people that like I hate. They by default hate everything that has to do with pop culture mm-hmm. and whatever popular trends are and then there's the other side of the person who always wants to be on the bleeding edge of like pop culture and what's happening and then you have that sort of like if it was like a Venn diagram you'd have that person in the middle and that's like Lara who's like obsessed with both of those ways of being mm-hmm. so. all right then so what do we have coming up next uh what do we have coming up next next is a novella oh we're doing Sherlock Holmes right Right. Which ones? Which Sherlock Holmes story are we we're doing? We're doing the first one, A Study in Scarlet, and we're going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes. We'll talk about the novella, but we'll also talk about the influence of the character of Sherlock yeah, Holmes. If you listen to our Conan episode, I think it's going to be a lot like that. I'll probably say the word rad a lot less than I did when we were talking about <laughs> Conan. But yeah, it's going to be a similar thing where we're going to deal with like a character. Uh, well, it was weird, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, uh, I mean, but, I mean, we're going to deal with it. It's another character that's had like a huge influence on pop culture. It's sort of a, I think I, the way I put it, maybe in the Conan thing was like a character that has become an archetype. Well, that's what I was. I was going to say we have this sort of recurring like 
theme of characters that have moved beyond the original source material. And Sherlock Holmes is one of the, if not the most iconic example of a character that has gone beyond anything that Doyle could have imagined. Well, anything that he wanted, even. It seemed like he was a little bit pissed off that he got so big. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, it'll be fun to... I mean, there's so many variants of literature that uses the character of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, even at one point, his own son was writing Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. So, I mean... I didn't know that. Ah, spoiler alert. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so that's what the next episode is going to be. And then, obviously, since we said this was the start of a new series, the episode after that, we're going to talk about Volume 2 of The Wicked and the Divine. So each volume has a name, right? This yeah, one I didn't, didn't, we didn't shout it out. What is the name of this one? This one is Faustus, I think? No. No, there's a Faustus quote in the beginning of it. The Faust Act. act. Huh. The Faust Act, the Faust Act. Yeah, okay. So, oh, like, like it's supposed to be a pun on the first act, I guess. Yes. But it's also like, I don't, like she, Laura sort of makes a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely. So then the second issue is called Fandemonium. Good. Which is another pop culture thing, which is to make up a new word. Yeah, but also another reference to the underworld. Fandemonium is a city in hell. So I don't know if that means anything, but that's there. Is that... Wait, that's a real... Is that a real thing or is that just from Hellboy? <laughs> At least in Hellboy, Pandemonium is a city in hell. I think it's a thing that exists in a broader classic demonology well that's something we can research all right so i think we're done here we're done spoiler alert stay tuned bye everyone